welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the coalition's managing editor, and today we'll hear about Marvin Hemeyer, who in 2004 modified a bulldozer with concrete and steel and demolished numerous buildings in Granby, Colorado. Patrick Brower, who was a reporter and then publisher for Sky High News in Grand County, wrote about Hemeyer in his book, Killdozer. Really, the, the, the key story behind what happened with Marv and the concrete plant is another story about growth and development in Grand County. Then, teens in Boulder County get involved in counting birds. It's like, I want to go, I want to go hang out with some bird people and see some birds. It's always more fun to do it in groups than on your own. And we'll round out today's show hearing about how community science projects like the upcoming Christmas Bird Count are helping the Audubon Society track bird populations in the region. It helps scientists fill in gaps in data by saying, hey, here's our problem. We need to gather this information about this species. We'll provide the training. We'll show you how to do it. We'll show you how to collect this information. Um, We'll train you to the best abilities that we can so that you feel fully prepared. And then you can go out and do it on your own and send us that data. And then we are getting more data than we could if it were just, you know, this small group of us trying to collect it because you just can't cover that much ground. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. What is your emergency? Ask them to help us get a national card unit, maybe with a helicopter crew. That's audio from the trailer for the film Tread. A documentary that tells the story of Marvin Hemeyer, who in 2004 modified a bulldozer with concrete and steel and demolished numerous buildings in Granby, Colorado. He first drove his armoured bulldozer through a concrete plant. Then, after a two-hour rampage, which saw him damaging 13 buildings, Hemeyer killed himself. Patrick Brower, who was a reporter and then publisher for Sky High News in Grant County, wrote about Hemeyer in his book, Killdozer. He spoke about the book with Ryan Wilson on KFFR. Can you tell us the first time you met Marvin? Sure. The first time I met Marv was in connection to uh, his muffler shop that he had just opened in Granby on land that he had purchased at an FDIC auction. And uh, that was in 19, would have been 1990, 1991. And Marv, uh, uh, I went down there to talk to Marv about advertising. And uh we developed a relationship there. He initially got mad at me because he said he wanted me to do a new business story, and I said, we'll do it. But he was never there when I wanted to do it, and then he got upset with me saying, well, you deliberately didn't write a story. I said, well, Marv, you got to be here to do it. So I gave we gave him some free advertising to make up for that, but um, we ended up talking here and there. Uh, he developed a successful muffler shop business on that land that he had purchased. 
And in many ways, you argue that Marvin was upset with development in this county like many of us are. Right. I mean, really, the, the, the key story behind what happened with Marv and the concrete plant is another story about growth and development in Grand County. Marv had bought that uh, two-acre parcel where his garage sat for a very low price at that auction. Uh, that auction came about because a bunch of land uh, was lost to banks in the uh, basically what they call the savings and loan crisis of the mid-'80s. Anyway, um, and Marv wanted to uh, develop that land, but he couldn't get uh, sewage uh, lines to the land without paying a lot of money, so he then went and decided to do a muffler shop instead, but at the whole time he was still thinking about what he would do. And uh, then when uh, the Dochefs decided they wanted to do a, a concrete batch plant nearby, Marv had hoped that he could sell that two acres back to the Dochefs because they had actually owned that land before the previous owner had owned it. And uh, I have to tell you that Marv's real angst about this whole thing was that he just wasn't able to sell that land at a higher price as he wanted. And uh, he was very frustrated about that, and that's where his real anger came about, and that's where he promised to fight the concrete batch plant, which was really just a fight about development, because what is more emblematic of growth and development than a concrete plant? I think you need concrete for development, that's for sure. Um, I'm talking with Patrick Brower, the former managing editor and publisher of Sky High News and the author of Killdozer and many other endeavors that we'll talk about here in a second. Now, your book, Killdozer, has actually become a documentary on Netflix called Tread. What's your thoughts on the documentary? Well, you know, the movie was really well done and professionally done, uh, but I think they were a little bit too even-handed overall. Um, I think they could have been better served by trying to take a more sympathetic perspective uh, of the regular people in Granby that were victimized by what Marv did. Uh, the basic storyline of the movie is you, they spend the first half trying to get the viewers to sympathize and empathize with Marv's plight and who Marv was. And then the second half is where they basically start to demonize him and you get to see how Marv was kind of sucked into his own conspiracy theory about what people had done to him and then about what he did. To me, I think it's important to sort of have a point of view about uh, how flawed and how wrong his perspective was. And when you watch the movie, you can tell that they're trying to say, well, we're going to let you decide. And I think it's okay for the producers to decide a little bit on their own. If someone wants to learn more about Killdozer, where can they go? Um, I think the book is uh, probably the best source for uh, uh, good information on the event. Secondly, watch the documentary, but read the book first, I would say. And third, talk to people. There's a lot of people in Granby that'd be happy to share what they think about what happened relating to that event. Patrick Brower, who was a reporter and then publisher for Sky High News in Grand County and author of the book, Killdozer. He was speaking there with Ryan Wilson on KFFR, And you can find the entire interview at kffr.org. At this time of year, there are lots of opportunities for birdwatchers to gather together. The Audubon Society's Christmas Bird Count starts December 14th 
And we'll hear about why that is such an important citizen science project later in the show. But first, let's tag along with some teen naturalists in Boulder County, Colorado, who are participating in a raptor survey with naturalist Steve Jones. This piece was produced by KGNU's Shelley Schlender as part of the Nature Almanac Report. It's December. What's happening in the natural world? Here are Boulder naturalist Steve Jones and Elena Claver and teen naturalist. I need three volunteers to map today's observations. I'm Owen. We are going to be walking the White Rocks Trail and recording all the raptors we see, so falcons, eagles, hawks, and we're going to be plotting the location so that we can know where these raptors winter in Boulder County. I'm doing the map of the falcons and also the northern harrier. My name is Lucian, northern harrier hawk. They're really interesting birds. They nest on the ground and they usually hunt swamplands and marshes and prairies, so they fly like close to the ground. They have a pale belly. Their body and wings are sort of brown. They have really good eyesight, so when they see it, they're going down and getting that vole or rabbit or prairie dog. Okay, here we go. Go. I see a couple really exciting European starlings. Here comes a mature bald eagle, everyone. Oh, yep, bald eagle. Might be mom or dad of the two that we saw on the way down. Could I have a My name is Elena Claver, and when I was driving down here this morning from Niwot, there were two immature bald eagles sitting right on 95th Street, and there were some other teen naturalists from Hygiene that were also stopped, so we got some very nice looks and pictures. (laughs) Um, A possible red-tailed hawk's nest. Up in this tall cottonwood, I think, kind of in this, like, V-shaped tree branch crook, big bushy pile of neat sticks. Hi, I'm Mia. I went on the raptor survey last year and I saw that this one was going on and I was like, I want to go, I want to go hang out with some bird people and see some birds. It's always more fun to do it in groups than on your own. I really want to go into ornithology when I'm older. My favorite raptor is the Cooper's hawk. They're like, I mean, they're medium sized. Not massive, but they're they're pretty large. Northern Harrier Hawk. It's flying a little bit back and left, just in front of some trees down there. Looks like a female. Or oh, it just perched. Yeah, just perched on a post. Up there's an adult bald eagle, and there's somebody sitting in the nest. There's also a magpie up there. One of the eagles on the nest is eating something. The magpies are jumping around trying to get some leftovers. So we have like a printout of a Google map and we're logging everywhere we see a, um, a raptor. And I have the bald eagle sheet, so that's what I'm doing. Yeah, so right now we have a pair of bald eagles. They look like they might be building a nest, and so we're going to try to figure out where they are on our map so we can log that. Okay, everyone, I have the scope on this nest. Come on over, anyone who wants to see the nest. An immature bald eagle. Immature bald eagles typically don't have white on their head. They're mostly like brown colored. Feathers are kind of disheveled and stuff because they're like in a transition moment and growing a bunch. It's flying way left. It's continuing to fly. Let's see. Flying, 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 flying. I'm about to lose it behind a tree. And it just scared up all of the starlings. European starlings. We're not doing very good today. We've seen bald eagles. Northern Harrier, 
Usually we, we get more than that. <laughs> but now we've usually probably seen like eight. So we gotta get on it, huh? Four bald eagles and a uh, harrier so far. On warmer days, we really get a lot of these thermals, which are like rising columns of warm air. And that is really easy for raptors to just get on and ride up and up and up for them to hunt. They might be flying way high up in the sky right now, and we can't see them. Yes, uh, Owen was saying they're way up there somewhere, and we're just not sighting them. The best days are when it's about zero out here, and today it's about 45. Uh, We'll see more. The Boulder Audubon Teen Naturalist program has been going for 10 years, and as you hear, we have some real expert students in this program. And it was actually founded by three of our most expert birders in Boulder County who were students at the time. And it's open to anyone who's in middle school or high school, or if they're a little before or beyond, uh, we'll make accommodations and just go to our website, Boulder County Audubon Teen Naturalist Program. Thanks to Boulder naturalist Steve Jones and Elena Claver and all the teen naturalists who helped with this raptor survey. By the end of the day, Steve Jones reports that the teen naturalists achieved a new high for raptors on this particular survey, capped by a ferruginous hawk who soared in from the north and circled over the parking lot after most of the group had left. Their totals for the day were three northern harrier, five golden eagles, one ferruginous hawk, 11 red-tailed hawks, For KGNU, I'm Shelley Schlender. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. I'm Maeve Conran. The Audubon Society is gearing up for its annual Christmas bird count, which starts December 14th. Zach Hutchinson is the Community Science Coordinator with Audubon Rockies. That covers Colorado, Utah and Wyoming. Hutchinson says this type of community science project is crucial to the work of the organisation. Another one of their projects is their Western Water Initiative. And I began by asking Hutchinson how the ongoing drought in the West is impacting birds. So... There, there are ample studies um, and long-term monitoring projects that, that show us during dry years, bird body condition is lessened, and basically meaning uh, the amount of fat they're storing up, um, the amount of muscle tissue, their overall body weight, the health and condition of their feathers, um, all of that's lowered. And then as part of that, they, um, they have lower productivity, so they maybe are laying fewer eggs um, or of the eggs that are laid, fewer of those chicks are surviving to adulthood. So uh, productivity and survivorship are down in, in times of drought. Um, and so it affects their then entire annual cycle when they're just one part of the year is spent in an area with less than optimal conditions. It affects the rest of their year. And then that has a carryover effect within the following spring, they might still be in rough condition. And again, then they're going to have the lower productivity, less eggs, fewer eggs, and then fewer chicks, and then fewer chicks surviving to adulthood. That long-term then causes what we see with bird population declines. The report that came out in 2019 about, you know, how many birds we've lost since uh, 1970, you know, we're talking 3 billion plus birds, and some of them are still on a very sharp decline 
things like pinion jays and evening growth speaks that over 90 to 95% of their populations uh, have disappeared in the last 50 years, which is terrifying. What about here in the, the three states, Utah, Wyoming and Colorado, that Audubon Rockies deals with? Are there particular species that are native to this region that you're quite concerned about? Yes. And, and uh, the greater stage grouse is one that I think uh, there's been a lot of discussion around. Two others that I would mention are the ones I just did mention, and, and that is the pinion jay and the evening grosbeak. The pinion jay depends upon that arid pinion juniper type habitat where pinion pine uh, starts to phase out. It's more of juniper or ponderosa type habitat. You know, so you'll find that throughout western Wyoming and then you get into the pinion as you go into western Colorado. That habitat is being gravely impacted by a variety of human factors. And so we're seeing, yeah, pinion jays in our region, which our region is the only region for pinion jays. They're found throughout the arid west and that is it. That's that They have nowhere else to go. So if they start running out of habitat here or their habitat is degrading too far, they don't have a backup area to move into. Um, so pinion jays, you're talking 93, 94% population loss. And then evening grosbeaks, which they're a boreal finch that uh, they summer in the boreal forests of Canada and then migrate down in the wintertime. But the Rockies actually have our own populations that breed throughout the Rocky Mountains and their populations have been impacted as well. We're not certain what levels on the ones that are our more permanent residents of the Rockies versus the ones in the boreal, but just across the board, evening growth speaks. You know, if you, if you had had a bird feeder up somewhere in the Rockies back in the 70s, you would have seen a hundred evening growth speaks maybe coming into those feeders and cleaning them out. And now you probably don't see any, or maybe you see one or two. They're a surprise instead of a regular bird that uh, swarms your feeders and causes your bird seed bill to go up. Now you're delighted when you see one. Talk about the broader implications of this decline in population of birds. I, I think there's a broader understanding when we have declining populations, say, of pollinators. There's a broader understanding of what that means for the ecosystem, but maybe there's less of an understanding about what that means on the wider scale when we are seeing a decline in bird populations. What should we be concerned about? Probably things we don't even know we should be concerned about. As you mentioned, you know, with pollinators, uh, sometimes it's a little easier to tie into, well, without this, we won't have this. Um, with some of these species, I think oftentimes they're overlooked or forgotten because we don't see the value to ourselves. Um, and well, if it doesn't have value to humans, should we really be that concerned? I think that's oftentimes a bit of apathy that shows through around species maybe that aren't as charismatic or beloved, right? And with these species, I think we would have to know every bit of, you know, their ecological import and then connect that because it's all, you know, you can call it a chain, a circle, whatever you would like to call it, a pyramid. It's all connected. And if you pull out that one piece, you know, if you want to think of it as a a thread on a tapestry or something, you pull out that thread and it all begins to unravel. But let's just let's think about something like the pinion jay, a species that collects pinion seed, pinion nuts, and then caches them. And so when a bird caches something, they hide it, right? And when they hide it, then they could be hiding it in the soil, in cracks and rocks, in various places, and they're not going to come back and collect all of those, those caches. And so you have seed dispersal. And seed dispersal on a level that if humans had to do it, you're talking billions of dollars of human and mechanical input to do seed dispersal. There was a study done on Clark's Nutcracker, which is one of the only major dispersers of whitebark pine. And 
billions of dollars worth of value in seed dispersal that these species offer that if if humans had to do it we just flat out we wouldn't be able to we wouldn't be able to in as effective of a manner because they're doing it randomly which is great right and whereas humans we we might often do it a little too methodically um, which maybe is harder on the trees you know we plant in lines or something like that and and then that actually doesn't work as well for trees or for those local ecologies. And something like an evening grosbeak, it's a huge pest control bird. Um, while they do have a big diet of seeds and berries, um, they also eat a large number of uh, a certain species of, of pests. They're not pests that affect maybe food crops that we think of as traditional food crops. If those pests then overpopulate and consume whatever that is, then what damage is that going to have on something else? And then, in, you know, and it's that kind of a, uh, snowball rolling downhill effect and we just don't know what the final outcome would be you know those are just a couple examples i think there are probably more that either i don't know or maybe as a collective we just don't know yet well you are involved in community science and i think the upcoming christmas bird count is a great example of that but for people who aren't really familiar with what community science is before we talk about the upcoming bird count give us just an overview of what it is and and how it impacts and helps the work of your organization? Community science is crowdsourcing data to an extent, um, if, if we wanted to put it in the simplest of terms, to gather data for all of our continent, all of our hemisphere, all of our species, we would need armies of scientists. And I don't think there are budgets out there that could handle that. So this is where community science comes in in that it offers opportunities to people to dip your toe into some science and uh, see what you what you feel like uh, collecting some of this information. And so community science, what it does is it helps scientists fill in gaps in data by saying, hey, here's our problem. We need to gather this information about this species. So here are the parameters. We'll provide the training. We'll show you how to do it. We'll show you how to collect this information. And then you can go out and do it on your own and send us that data. And then we are getting more data than we could if it were just, you know, this small group of us trying to collect it because you just can't cover that much ground. So let's tie back to the Pinion J. We have currently a community science project happening across the Western half of North America. We're training community scientists to go out and count and collect data on just the Pinion J. Everything from behaviors to uh, are they nesting to, you know, marking nests so that we can track where nests are at what habitat they're using, what foods they're eating. And it's all being on the ground collected by community scientists who are just people who all sorts of jobs, you know, they could any sort of day job and then they do this, you know, maybe they're out hiking and they see pinion jays and they remember, yes, I was trained on how to do this. I go into my, my app, I input my data, I click submit and I just did community science and I'm going to continue on with my hike now. And it can be as simple as that or as complex as the Christmas bird count, which is a very large event uh, with a lot more moving parts. Well, let's talk about that. I know it's happening over a series of days. It starts in mid-December and it's, I think, is it the biggest community science project in the country? Certainly one of them. Yes, it is. It is one of the largest. You know, I think it probably uh, has competition from uh, Global Big Day, International Migratory Bird Day, events like that. But yes, it's it's you know it started out as what twenty participants back in nineteen hundred, and now you're talking tens of thousands of people that go out uh, in this time span and join their local community members and and count birds. 
and you know you're doing it is maybe just part of a fun thing you want to do maybe you want to take your family out and get outside and you can do that and then contribute some data back to this long running monitoring project that helps us to understand this kind of if you want to envision it as like a capturing an image of a single time frame every winter for the past 120 some years right this is the 124th count coming up it's it's capturing an, a single image of this time span every single year. And, and so we can start to see what are the changes happening to birds during the winter across the North American landscape. And now it's international. Now we're getting it not only on the birds that are uh, across North American winter, but the birds that often breed in North America in the winter and then migrate south into uh, Mexico, Central America, South America, you know, and are, are spending time in all of these areas. There are counts there now. So we can get a snapshot of what these birds are doing down there on their wintering grounds as well as the birds that uh, North America is their wintering grounds. How much participation do you anticipate or have you had here in the Rocky Mountain region around the Christmas bird count? Oh, goodness. Now, that is a number that uh, I don't know for certain. Um, it kind of all goes into our, our larger numbers. Um, I don't know if we have a regional count. I know, though, we have probably close to 100 circles, I think, within the region. So if you look at the, the region as a whole, probably over a hundred circles considering the whole region. And you're talking, you know, there might be 40 to 50 people on the average size circles. Smaller circles might have 10 to 15 and then larger circles can have over a hundred. So a lot of participation. Um, and that's why the dates are scattered is because if people want to do this circle one day and then go and do this circle the next day, uh, which for instance is what we're doing here in Wyoming, I'm going to do the, the Sheridan Christmas bird count on the 16th and then the Goshen Hole Christmas bird count on the 17th. Um, and so a lot of people are doing that. So you have to scatter the dates out so that uh, people can pick and choose which circles they want to make. And some years you switch which circles you want to do because maybe you want to see some new birds or a new part of the region or meet some new people. Well, how can people get involved in the upcoming Christmas bird count? What's the, the best way to connect with something happening locally? Easiest way is you're going to want to go to the Audubon Christmas bird count website. And there there is a map of circles. So if you want to start very close to home, if you don't want to have to travel for your first Christmas bird count, which is very understandable, you go to this, this map of circles, you find the circle that is closest to you, you click on it, and it has contact information for count leaders is what they're called. And so then you want to find that contact information for your count leader, email, phone call, reach out to them and say, hey, I would like to be involved. Maybe you don't know anything about birds. Let them know that because you could be paired then with maybe a mentor um, who can, you know, help kickstart that for you. I know my first Christmas bird count, I didn't know anything about birds. And uh, I had a mentor who helped me out throughout the day, helped me learn some, some tips and tricks. And then the following year, I decided I wanted to take some ornithology classes. And so I did. And then I started learning about birds. Even if you have no experience or minimal experience with birds, and you just want to see what it's about, you can just ride along with someone else or walk along with someone else. There are hiking routes, there are biking routes, there are boating routes, there are driving routes. Um, last year we were snowshoeing and cross-country skiing on our route um, because we were, we were in deep snow and we had to, had to put on some alternative methods of transporting across the landscape. If you wanna do that, you wanna get out, all of these counts have leaders who can connect you with the right people to help you grow in your knowledge, but also get out and enjoy this holiday season in, in maybe a new way. Zach Hutchinson is the Community Science Coordinator with Audubon Rockies, which covers Colorado, Utah and Wyoming. 
You can find a local Christmas bird watch group or circle at audubon.org. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to KGNU and KFFR for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 